you do that better than I do. You should be helping me. Uh, I'll tell you what, that was worth the wait, wasn't it? Yeah. Love that. That was fantastic. I don't think I've ever heard that song before, but well, I like it. How, how can we touch a world uh, that we, eh, we got to be brave. I'll tell you, this is a day, you know, you got to choose what side you're on. I've told you a few weeks ago, playing, playing nice. If you want to save America, you got to get some courage. And if we want to reach the lost, it, it is not, it, it's, you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone a little bit. And I, it's kind of amazing, you know, they sing that song and I just told you, we can, one way you can reach is to just fill out online, fill out a shoebox online. And all right, young people can make the way to junior church. So the kids are already telling me they're on their way out. So like, come on, pastor, we want to go to our own church. I don't blame you. I'd, I'd rather go to your junior church too. Uh, but I have to stay here. <laughs> All right, Ephesians chapter number two in your Bibles this morning, Ephesians chapter number two, and I want to finish a series I began last week, just a two-parter entitled Grace Life, and we began last Sunday, and today, last Sunday was very theological, this week going to be a a little bit more, uh, I don't know what the word would be, application, I don't know, Uh, some things I want to share with you from my heart, which I do every week, but some things that are really... uh, core to who we are as a church, who I want us to be, and I think God wants us to be. And so Grace Life in Ephesians chapter 2, this whole sermon was kind of provoked by our Pastor Danny and I's time at the Grace uh, Conference a few weeks ago over in uh, the Fort Worth, Texas area. And I'm so thankful for Grace. Aren't you thankful for Grace? I'm telling you what, um, very, very good. I I think it's still warm here. Are you okay, DT, or is it just me? You guys, everybody calm, everybody fine out there? All right, who's comfortable? Who's hot? Anybody hot in there? There's only four of us. Okay. <laughs> okay. Looks like we're outnumbered, DT, by a wide margin. <laughs> I'm sorry, DT. Unless, you want me to take my jacket off? Is that what you're thinking? I got to do my, I can't come down there. You'll have to come up here. No, I can't come down there. That's, I'm lying. That's all right. Okay. I knew if I don't do this, I'm going to hear about it later. So in case you wonder. Um, yes, I'm, I will be in trouble. Um, grace, uh, the, you know, it's hard word in some ways even to define. I'm going to give you a, another one this week. I've been kind of looking at different folks who have different things to say, and I came across this one. Uh, grace is the exercise of love, of kindness, compassion, mercy, favor. It's a disposition to benefit or serve another. I think it's a great definition of grace. Now, uh, to put it down there where uh, Pastor Danny could understand it, I, I, I put it in, uh, in cat terms this morning and uh, for Karen as well. Uh, and Mickey, I'm sure Mickey's watching. Uh, here you go. Um, here's, here's, your, here's your cat meme for this Sunday. Give a little mercy, give a little grace. Look at the little kitten. Anybody want a kitten? Pastor Danny wants a kitten. All right, everybody knows a kitten. Pastor Danny's looking for one. Uh, Alyssa, where's Alyssa's not in here? Okay, you're lucky because she would not forget, but she's going to hear about it, so don't, uh, don't worry. I, I want to live a grace life, and as we consider a grace life uh, theologically and in practicality, I came to this very, very familiar verse of Scripture, one that most of us have committed to memory in Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8, 9, and 10. And we find two elements in, throughout this verse and this chapter that I find grace, the grace life reflected. And first is grace in salvation, grace in salvation. And that's verses 8 and 9. Uh, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And we talked about this last week, and I think it's the first 
and most important is being sure that you have an eternal grace life, that, that you know God personally and received his free gift of eternal life through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, present tense, everlasting life. And I pray this morning that you have experienced the grace life that will uh, carry with you for all of eternity. Um, but also, not only is there grace and salvation, but today I want to look at the second part of our series, and that is grace in service. Grace in service. There's grace in salvation, and then there's an essential need of grace in service. Look at verse number 10 is our text this morning. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship. The Greek word here for workmanship is the word that we get, uh, that the word evolution came down to the word or up to the word, however you want to look at it, to the word poem. Isn't that interesting? For we, if you're a believer, you are a poem of God. Now, I'm not a real good writer of poetry. I think Pastor Danny likes writing poetry, um, getting in touch with him with his, you know, touchy-feely side. Um, I, most of us men probably only write poems back many years ago when, when we were in love with our wives. Uh, that was a little, like some, nobody's objecting to that. I'm still in love with my wife, you know, personally. And I never did write her poems, so she doesn't know what she's missing. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. But I've known some men to write some pretty powerful poetry motivated by, by, by love. And it's interesting that we are his workmanship, that we are, we are his poem. Now, if you look into the Greek word a little deeper, which I did, it has the idea of making a product, producing a product. Specifically, it seemed to have background with fabrics. And when you think about making a fabric with a beautiful colors and designs and how they can be woven together uh, to make something, something beautiful. I was reading some of the commentators, and one of the commentators said that as a believer, we are his work of art. Do you realize that as a child of God and as a believer, we are his work of art? Now, a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, I was, uh, Jen and I were on a, on a cruise ship, and if you've known anything about cruise ships, every cruise ship has, uh, at least everyone we've ever been on, has an art gallery on the cruise ship, and they'll auction off or have art, different art things in there, just another way for them to take your money, is in my <laughs> thing, you know, I've never really been a huge art person, I, I do appreciate it on some levels and you know we had to take fine arts when I was at PCC they still take fine arts some of you young PCC people still got to take fine arts okay uh, made me have to learn about no Cody's going no no wonder you're an uncivilized youth pastor that figures uh, how that worked out but all the rest of them are going yeah somehow you got out of there you could use a little fine arts pastor Cody uh no just kidding you're doing fine um but they have this, these art galleries, and you know, I can tell you, in all the years we've been cruising, I've never, have we ever gone and attended an art gallery? Never have. Never even tried to win the raffle to win one. You know, they give you free, free tickets, so you show up, and then they can try and sell you. No, I've never done any of that, but we were walking by the art gallery, and on the, our last cruise, the particular ship that we were on, it's a big, pretty good-sized boat, and uh, we were walking down one of the areas where some of the shops are at on one side, and you're walking, it's like two or three stories high, and you'd come near the end of the ship, and you'd go back to single floor, you know, so it's kind of going into a walk-in entryway, and right above there, 
they had some artwork that was about four foot by four foot square. And there was two of them. And for your art, uh, for your art pleasure and to bring fine arts and culture to our church this morning, I thought I'd show you the actual pictures that I walked by every day when I went this way throughout the ship several times a day. This is the artwork. I had to know about this. I kept walking by there and I kept telling Jenny, you know, somebody is, you know, I, I've talked to the art guy and he told me some guy who did it and blah, blah, blah. You know, I have no idea who the guy was and I don't, I don't know. And it was some kind of, I don't know what he said, some kind of an ex- expressionist art piece. Are you guys all expressive this morning? Does that speak to you this morning? I, I remember walking by there going, and you want how much for it? And I, I thought to myself, I don't know about you, but I believe that my five-year-old autistic granddaughter could produce these all day long i already came a name artwork by addy and uh, you know we'll just sell them for a million dollars like hunter biden does you know i mean that's better maybe that maybe that's a hunter biden original i don't know um <laughs> okay <laughs> too rich huh um I, I don't know but i walk by that every single day and every time i look up there i'd go i just can't believe that somebody gets paid that you know does that and it's some amazing work of art now if you're out here and you're an art entrepreneur and expressive you can explain to me later uh what i'm not seeing in there this is like one of those things i've kept thinking to myself if uh, i ever end up on the on the on the sofa in the psychiatrist or psychologist's office which i very well may uh this looks like one of those pictures what do you see you know <laughs> i see my wife <laughs> uh, no 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 i don't um but I don't know about you, but I hope my life in being a work of art is a little bit easier to understand than that is. Unfortunately, I think there are some believers because of a rebellion to God. Maybe, does your life, what does it look like? Now, the only way that we're going to change is by the grace of God. And I'm so thankful that when God offers the free gift of eternal life, He offers it to whosoever will, however you are. The blood of Christ can wash away all sin. But the Bible teaches, and God would have us the idea that Brother Locke and I used to say, I'm sure he still says it, you know, that we are to come as we are, but not leave as we were. That's the kind of thing at church. You know, come as you are, but don't leave as you were. I, I, we, we want the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to bring conviction and make changes in our life where it is necessary that God may continue to work a work of art in our lives and not be a adversarial to our own Heavenly Father, which every one of us in here at times has been. Paul goes on to say that not only by grace does he want to give us beauty for ashes, as Isaiah said, but Paul goes on to say that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Our new art form, if you will, is based on the fact that we're a new creature. Aren't you glad that the, the power of being a new creature in Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, most of you know this verse, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And it's a wonderful thing to see a person changed by the grace of God from being you know, controlled and dominated by sin in their life to becoming a very different person through the power of God. And if you've lived any length of time, you realize that real change in people is very, very hard. At least it is in me. And I know there's some of you out there who are going to say, well, people never change. No, they do. I'd agree with you it's rare because even Christians, we don't like submitting to what God brings into our life to bring about some changes that God designs for us to draw upon His grace to get through some things. 
Now, all the blessings that you and I have in, are really in Christ. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, where we're seeing that in Christ, remember back in chapter 1, that is the theme of the first 14, 15 verses. It's not talking about most people use Ephesians chapter 1 to teach how God's chosen people to salvation. No, God chose beforehand that anyone who would come to Christ freely and they would then be placed in Christ. And when they were in Christ, they'd receive all kinds of blessings. And when you and I got saved, the moment you chose Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, Ephesians 1 tells us that you received the blessing of being declared holy, blameless, you're adopted into the family of God, and you're sealed forever by the Spirit of God. There's all kinds of blessings of being in Christ. And I think he's hearkening back to that, that we are his workmanship in Christ. So just like all these other blessings come along, when you are placed in Christ, God takes your life and the mess that it is, and his plan is to make it a masterpiece. And that was God's plan from the beginning. Notice in our text, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works. God had this uh, a long time prepared, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So God said from the beginning, just as we read in Ephesians chapter 1, that from the ages, the foundation of the world, God had planned, this is how I'm going to deliver God or deliver men uh, through Christ Jesus and anybody that responds to my offer of free gift, this is what I'm going to do for them. And here he's reminding us that when he made that, he said, but when I saved them from the very beginning, he, he said, I'm not going to, my plan is not just to save them and leave them where they are in the mess of their sin, but through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, that they would become this, this masterpiece as I change them into the Christ life. We are not saved by good works. Verse 9, he just got done saying, not of works, lest any man should boast. But when we are saved, God's desire, notice in our text, that we should walk in them. The Christian should produce good works. Now, I'm not talking about good works in the flesh because I'll tell you what, what I've learned is a lot of people, go to, you go to churches around, and there's a lot of people that are really churchy. They, they can put on a good front, and they, especially in our Baptist world, they can follow all the rules. They know what to wear and what not to wear and what to say and all that. And they, they, they can do things because it makes them look good or they feel good about themselves and they have to do certain things. Good works in the New Testament, by biblical definition, is a spirit-driven action that we are yielding to the Holy Spirit of God in obedience to him to bless somebody else and do what God is calling us to do and it produces good works and God says my plan is when I save them my desire is that they should produce good works notice it does not say they automatically will produce good works my Calvinist friends here will teach you that if you're really genuine you have to persevere in the saint uh, you know persevere in good works and if you don't it means that you're not really saved that we don't find that here Matter of fact, if you go into the Greek, if I can get a little nerdy on you, uh, the mood here, and that's part of the verb tense, there's tense and there's mood, and the mood here is subjunctive, which I was looking up one definition, it means the idea of possibility or potential. In other words, you realize before you were saved, before God, no matter, you can walk a bunch of little ladies across the street, you can do all kinds of things, but if you do things in the flesh, before God, it is as filthy rags. You can't really do good works before you knew Christ, by God's definition. Now, you can do good works according to man's morality, and I'm not saying it doesn't have merit. You know, some people, like I tell you, you know, uh, if, you, if you've met uh, any Mormons, Mormons are some of the nicest people you'll ever meet. They're nice people. 
Matter of fact, I've, I've had a time or two, we've been out in our neighborhood. You know, Mormons will go out door to door and they'll, they'll go to people's door and they'll say, hey, can we mow your lawn? In their, in their blue pants and their white shirt and their ties. Why? They're willing to go out there in the middle of the summer in Alabama and knock on a door and mow a lawn simply they have an opportunity to share their faith with that person. Well, you can't get Christians even to get up on the time change Sunday. But their good works of mowing a lawn is not impressing God. And until you and I become one of his children, in the biblical sense of producing something good that is spirit-driven, you can't do that if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. So only believers. And he's talking here the potential and possibility, God said, when I save them, now they can really, through my spirit, they can begin to do things bigger than themselves. And God said, this is how they should walk. By the way, one of my arguments that I would have that I oftentimes, and maybe Pastor Dan, I'm sure he's heard more of this than I have with our apologetics ministry, but one of the things I wrestled with when I was going through this whole theological debate with with my friends on the Calvinist side is they would teach that if you're really saved, you will produce good works, and that's how we can evaluate if somebody's really doing, if they're really a Christian, we look at their works. And we look at if they're not producing things, then they're not really saved. And yet, I was always confused. First, the Pharisees were the most religious people in the New Testament. If anybody looked like they were saved, it would have been the Pharisees. And we know most of them were on their way to hell. But number two, I used to question and say, well, if, if I get saved and I have to, I irresistibly, because I'm a genuine believer, will produce good works, then why in the world does Paul teach in numerous places, for example, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, why does Paul teach and then why does the scriptures tell us that as a believer, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, known as the Bema seat? Why am I going to go and, and be evaluated for the things I did and the things I did not do in service to him? If I have to produce good works, then why should I be, why should I be rewarded or why should I be blamed? But the reality is, no, God puts it on you and he puts it on me and that even as a believer, I make choices every day. And that's why Paul said in his writings, I have to die daily. Because if I don't, the old me comes out and bad things happen. Therefore, we are saved eternally by grace, by his unmerited favor. And we should also serve by grace, doing good works by the Spirit with an attitude of grace. This is the grace life. You know, when you consider the New Testament, if you look at all the New Testament books that Paul, God used, the whole, used Paul to pen, and even some of Peter's, I think, and even some of John's, they all generally begin and end with an exhortation to grace. I was going to list them all for you, but I, I know most of you probably know this, and I don't get tedious, but I, we go, you just start looking, beginning of Colossians, the end of Colossians, beginning of Galatians, the end of Galatians, just go through, you know, where there's, a, there's an appeal to the believers to be full, to be multiplied in grace, both when the letter to the church begins and when the letter to the church ends, it's always surrounded in Paul's emphasis in the Holy Spirit of God and the under inspiration of Scripture, it says, church, I want you to understand, with all the issues that we deal with, that the New Testament covers, let it be surrounded by grace. Now, when it comes to good works, you know, what are good works? Now, we talk to their spirit-filled things, but I use the example, some people say, well, it's helping a little old lady across the street. You know, obviously, there are many good things we can do, but I noticed when he was talking about 
verse 10 in our the workmanship and that we're created unto good works and in verse 8 the idea that the whole thing begins through grace i thought it interesting how paul what he pivots to immediately following this idea of the workmanship of christ and us being filled with good works notice with me and i'm going to read just because i think it's important i'm going to read the rest of chapter number two and I, i want you to see from the next from verse 11 all the way to the end of this chapter there's one theme that paul keeps saying over and over again see if you can figure it out all right wherefore in light of what he has just said remember that ye being in times past gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in other words the jews the circumcision uh, said the gentiles you're uncircumcised you know there's a distinction there in the flesh made by hands that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, there it is, in Christ, ye who were sometimes were afar off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath, hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances or the Mosaic law, uh, for to make man in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Did I do that? (laughs) Boom, boom. Boy, see, I preach things happen. That ye might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and with the saints of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Do you get what he's trying to say after he talks about good works and we're his workmanship and he's talking to the church here at Ephesus? The next thing he pivots to is inside most of the New Testament churches when they began. If you know the book of Acts, you know that Paul would go to a place and he would find the, the, uh, the he would go to a synagogue. He'd go find other Jews and he'd show the Jews in the scriptures which they knew how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all the things needed to be the Messiah as the prophets had written. And folks would come to faith in Christ and a church would be planted and Gentiles began to be converted. So in almost all the, the, the early churches were made of a mixture of Jew and Gentile. Now that might not mean a lot to you, but maybe I could go back to 1860s South America and a black guy and a white guy being together in the 1860s. Maybe today it would be like, I was trying to think of any analogy, but I'm sure analogies fail in some way, so don't hold me to this, but just the basic idea. It'd be like if we brought, if we brought a, a, a Muslim from Iraq in here this morning or a group of people that grew up in, in Sharia law, but now they're believers. But all they've known their whole life is Sharia law. I'm telling you, there'd be some conflicts inside that church. I, I, don't know, I don't know if I'd want to pastor that church. I'm telling you, Jews had been taught their entirety of their life in the Old Testament covenant, and, and then by the, the Pharisees more specifically, and the Mishnah, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the laws of the rabbis, that the Gentiles were to be avoided at all costs, and if you came in contact with them, you were unclean. 
And that's why this whole rest of this chapter, he keeps talking about how, like in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. What is he saying in that verse? He's talking to the Jew and the Gentile. He says, Gentiles, you who were once far off because you were outside of the covenants, you were without hope. Your only hope was that someone like Rahab that found uh, the, the true and living God and that God would, you know, through Israel, be in a, a light. But through the law, there was a separation there. But he said, by the blood of, blood of Christ, now you're brought nigh together, Jew and Gentile, as one. And he ends that chapter turning the page and saying, understand that now you're fellow citizens. And then in verse 21, he says, you're like a building all fitly framed together. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the local church. That the local church ought to not be made up of everybody who's all the same. We each have distinctions. Grace life. God made them one. Even though there were conflicts, there were differences of opinions, there were cultural distinctions, yet God said you are one through the finished work of Jesus Christ And God wanted the church to love one another, serve one another, do good works unto one another, grace life. Sometimes we just don't really want to be people that give a lot of grace. Ever guilty of that? I am. Matter of fact, I've been nice to cats this morning. Now I have to turn the tables and be my real self, go back into the flesh here. And how about this one here? (laughs) I love this one. Uh, Grace, not for you, mean kitty cat. Sometimes I don't really like giving grace um, to people that I don't understand or that I don't like or that are different than me. You see, a church without a grace culture will be divided, they'll be critically minded, they'll be unfruitful. I believe with all my heart for a local church to follow and do the Great Commission to reach people in salvation and then also to make disciples requires grace it does i i i want our church to have an atmosphere of grace say what does that mean it means giving others undeserved kindness not kindness when they've done good to you but kindness when they haven't it means undeserved forgiveness undeserved benefit of the doubt when you hear someone say something and you can interpret that in many different ways and you know how you are if you're like me you hear someone say something you immediately know some of you are worse than others especially if, if you happen to be an insecure person every little phrase you hear you think oh they're attacking me maybe give them a little grace give them grace grace is not committing a suicide grace is being kind when the other one doesn't deserve it it's Letting things go unto God when words and actions hurt. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need any accountability one to another. We do. I'm not saying we don't need to confront wrongdoing. We do. But I want to confront wrongdoing in other people's lives from the mindset of disciple building with grace in our hearts. And that can be really difficult. And sometimes, no matter how gracious you are, when you confront someone with an area of wrongdoing, they have a choice to make, too, on how they receive it. But you and me have a responsibility that we're confronting that, not to show them how awful they are, but we want to build them as a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And so we're offering them grace. When we were at the conference a couple weeks ago now, we had several speakers, and I'm sure Pastor Danny had his favorites. Uh, trying to guess who your favorite speaker probably was. I don't know. Um, uh, I don't know. You have to tell me who your favorite speaker was. I don't. Jeremy Vance. All right. Oh, Philip, I figures. Michael Stewart, I think his name is. This guy spent 50 minutes in Genesis 2.17 where God told Adam and Eve, he told Adam to go into the garden and keep it and dress it, and he spent an hour on the Hebrew significance of the word it, which at the end of it he said isn't even there. Now you know why Pastor Danny liked it, and I was going, oh, my word. I'm going to come that and feed that to you guys. You're all, I, I just did in three minutes. Took him 50. And he's got the PhD. So is him. I like the guy who spent his entire life pastoring a church. His name's Ed Underwood. And I doubly liked him when he got up there, and he was retired from being a senior pastor because he went, has leukemia. Uh, but he pastored a church called the Church of the Open Door. You gotta like the guy, right? Church of Here's a picture of the, their website. Uh, this is the church. It's out in California, so don't, don't judge it too quickly. There are some good people, all you Californian believers. We love you. We pray for you. God help you. You need grace. Um, but this is the church that if, if, you're a, if you're a Christian of any experience, uh, J. Vernon McGee, you know, J. Vernon McGee, read all his This is the church J. Vernon McGee pastored for many years. When, when J. Vernon McGee retired, um, and left the ministry, which this happens frequently, unfortunately. The church descended into chaos when there was a vacuum of leadership and when you've had someone as distinguished as J. Vernon McGee. And the church was in war with one another. It was a real mess. They went through one pastor, and didn't, he didn't last very long, and then they called Ed Underwood to come be their pastor. And he took over that tr struggling church, and by the grace of God, his words... You know, God turned it back around, and it, he pastored there for many decades. Um, and now, Ed's ministry is helping churches that are failing. Ed said at the conference, in all his years of ministry, and, and he, he has a, he, he, this guy had some years, significant ministry years. He said, I've never seen a time when more Bible-believing pastors are leaving the ministry and where churches are closing. He said, it's always happened. He said, I'm telling you, in the last five years, the rate of that is exponentially growing because we are living in tough days. But Ed said the missing element in the churches that were dying was grace. grace. He said, talking about grace is easy until you and I have to give it. Now I'm going to give you a couple Ed Underwood quotes that I wrote down in the conference that I thought were profound. Danny mentioned one of them last week. It's really quickly, you probably didn't hear it because he talks fast. I, I don't know where he learned that. Um, had a great model, I guess. Talk fast. Da, 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 da. This is what Ed said. Grace is the face when love meets imperfection. 
You can write these down if you want. They're good. I didn't, you know. The last one's mine, but. Grace is the face when love meets imperfection. Think about that. Grace is how we look when we are confronted with somebody else's imperfection, their failure in some area. Do we respond to it with grace or in the flesh? I know I struggle. He mentioned this in this one I've, I think about a lot. Realize one of the reasons we don't give grace easily is because we struggle to receive grace. I think that that's profound. If you don't accept the fact that God freely loves you and chose to give you eternal life and loves you and took you right where you are and believe that God can use you and is making a masterpiece out of you, how in the world can you help somebody else? It's really hard. So one of the first things that, especially in our independent Baptist world, we're, we're not real good about teaching is learning and teaching and admonishing and encouraging you and I receive grace. Say, so what do you mean? That means when you mess up, which you will, and you do what the scripture requires, whether you need to apologize to somebody or maybe you just had a, some kind of thought you knew was wrong and you just have to ask God for you. ask that forgiveness, you get it right. Receive his forgiveness. Agree with him. That in spite of who you are, and God knows who you really are, and it ain't pretty. Even for believers in terms of our old flesh. Now, our new self is beautiful to him, but our old flesh, as Paul wrote in Romans 7, the body of death that we live with, it can be ugly. You say, it is? Yeah, go to some church business meetings. It can be real ugly. Ed went on to say this, second quote, The church today is far too comfortable with disunity. Oh, that's good. The church today is far too comfortable with disunity. Are you okay having something against another church member? Is there somebody in our church that you don't like and you're not afraid to make it known that you don't like them? The Spirit of God is not into that kind of attitude. You say, well, it doesn't matter. It's just me personally. No, it does matter because those are the fractures that underline a church that begin to creep up underneath the church so they grow into bigger fissures and eventually there's splits. And most of us who've lived for God any length of time have some experience with that. And I can promise you as one who has been through it, there's not a lot of grace there. Paul would later write, even here in Ephesians, the letter to the church at Ephesus, the importance of forgiving one another. You know the verse, and be kind to one another. 432, tender-hearted, graceful, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, why did Christ forgive? Why did God forgive you? Because of Christ? How, how did, on what basis did he do that? On the basis of grace. Unmerited favor. You and I didn't deserve that. He went on to say this. Third Ed quote. They just get gooder and gooder. I kind of... Vindication and reconciliation are incompatible. Now, maybe these are too deep for you. I, I hope they're not, because this will revolutionize your marriage, your relationships at work. Vindication and reconciliation are incompatible. Are you concerned if you're right, or are you concerned if God is glorified? 
Are you concerned if you're right or if your marriage has oneness? Now, again, I am not saying that we cannot, should not confront wrongdoing. That is not the point of what I'm saying here. But I'm saying in your heart, if when you go to confront the root motive that you have in confronting them is you want to be vindicated, which people like me, I like to be vindicated. I like to be right because I almost always am. Come on. It's it's 11.09. You guys say, Pastor, it's time to wind it up. Okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. You're not going to laugh at my jokes anymore. Last quote. Ed said, the solution to having a grace life, keep Jesus in the middle and not on the margins. Keep Jesus in the middle and not on the margins. He went on to say this, and I thought this was profound. When Jesus says, how do I know if Jesus is in the middle or he's on the margins? I'm going to give you a real clear answer. When Jesus is not in the middle of your good works and your life as a Christian, following Jesus becomes weary and joyless. If you are extremely weary in your faith that there's no joy in your life, I would suggest to you Jesus is not in the middle. I'll tell you that's how it works for a marriage. If your marriage is a mess, I don't care. You can both be Christians. Christians can have a lousy marriage as easy as anybody else. If Jesus ain't in the middle, it's going to be weary and joyless. But we is in the middle. It's great. Amen, Jenny? Amen. Is Jesus in the middle of your life? Is he in the middle of your good works? Is he in the middle of your service to him? Is he in the middle of... My preaching, is he in the middle of the Iwana program? Is he in the middle of the diamond dinners? Is he in the middle of the youth group? Is he in the middle of the music ministry? Is he in the middle of our fellowship time? Is he in the middle of your car on the way home from church? Is he in the middle of your words? Is he in the middle of of our attitudes? Is he in the middle of your marriage? Is he in the middle of your suffering? Is he in the middle? Or is he on the margins? And just as Paul told the church at Ephesus that good works and his workmanship begins in purposing to be one in the local church, so this morning I humbly plead with everyone that's here and everyone's watching online, put Jesus in the middle. As a church, we have got to purpose to be one. It's challenging for our church. We've got military people that come in and out, and Prattville and Montgomery is an area of trans, uh, transition oftentimes, and, and people, new people come in, and sometimes we lose the vision. And this morning, I want you to be reminded that, that grace life is the only way this happens, but we have got the purpose to be one. Ed told his church when he took the pastorate that had been divided and all these hurts that the key to turning their church around is the grace life. And so they began a campaign and a prayer that I kind of summarized in one last quote, a KCS quote this morning. The first campaign they had, they, they all got shirts that said, Lord, make us one. These are people who had been at each other's throats. Some of you know what that's like in a church. Some of you have been through that. Lord, make us one. And as the years went on, when they became one, that's when the church became powerful. That's when it began to be fruitful. Is in their oneness in Christ. They said a few years later, we realized things were getting a little off track a little bit, so we did a second campaign where it said, Lord, keep us one. So I thought our prayer and my prayer for our church, and I want this morning, I know I'm going a little long, so be it. I, I, if, if we don't grab hold of this principle and we 
are not a place of grace, we'll never be one. Satan is working hard to destroy this place. Maybe you don't know. And so what can I do about it? You know what you can do is you can love that person that just drives you completely crazy. Give them grace. The grace life is essential in the life of the believer, his family, and the church. Be a person of grace. Lord, thank you for the teaching of your word this morning. Lord, I thank you for the attentiveness of the folks here today and uh, the urgency of the message this morning. Um, God, we need your grace in our service. God called us to unto good works. You called us to be spirit-filled and to yield to your spirit in producing love and joy and peace and long-suffering. God, I pray if there's one here this morning that has an issue with someone first inside our own local church, there's somebody that they need to turn over to you. Maybe there's something that needs confronting. God, I pray you'd help them to deal with it this morning and extend grace. God, help us to be a church of oneness. God, I pray if there's one listening today who doesn't know they're on their way to heaven, my dear friend, Jesus offers you a free gift of eternal life. You receive you right where you are. Would you trust him as your Savior today? Would you believe in Jesus Christ for your destiny today? Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you'd work in hearts. Thank you for the effectiveness of your word and its relevance in our life today. Thank you for grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand with me? Brother Joe's going to lead us in a verse of...